Wolfing Down Food Science. Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great summer. We are here with the top 10 wolfing down food science episodes. So you can binge watch while you're getting your tan on the beach or not. <laughs> um, all of these top episodes and uh, we hope that you really enjoy them. Yeah, summer's the season to get outside and enjoy the weather and the sun. Um, so we hope that you will take us with you wherever you're going, whether it's the beach or a hike in the forest, whatever you're doing and enjoying. Um, make, make sure that we're there with you. We'll have an episode every single week this summer, and then we'll be back after Labor Day. Happy listening. This, this season, we've been talking a lot about preservation. And uh, one of the things that comes up anytime we're talking about food and food science is all of these chemicals in our food. So I want to circle around to something that we, we did touch on a bit, but just this idea of all the things that we can add to our food that might relate to preservation, just what they are and how we would group them into really, really large categories. So for the purpose of this discussion, we can talk about two what do you think, Teresa? Yeah, I'm just thinking about if I were ever to buy a processed food, my first thing when I think about processed food is, oh, chemicals in my food. What does that mean? Um, I know there must be some pres preservative effects because they're adding some things I can't even say, I must admit. But um, I'm curious to know more about the specifics here. Well, there, there are different ways of preserving foods, and we've, we've talked about a number of them. Uh, some of them relate to processing. So do you freeze it? Do you dry it? Do you heat it? Uh, do you microwave it? What, what are you doing to this food in terms of processing? And some of them relate to just what things do you add? So the two big categories that come to mind would be additives, which by definition are present in small quantities. So um, 1% or less, so tiny amounts. And then the others, which can be present at much higher quantities, are called GRAS, generally recognized as SAFE, or G-R-A-S is the, is the big definition. So those are the two, uh, two big definitions. And if we want to think about this, there's actually kind of a balance between what we add to a food, like the ingredients or the chemicals, if you will, and then the processes that we use. So if we add more of those chemicals, we can do less processing. If we oh. Think we may be able to add fewer chemicals. So there really is a balance, you know, where you may not want chemicals in your food. Well, we may have to process it more. You may not want processed food. We may have to add more of these materials to keep the food safe. So oh, I, I always assumed it was a direct relationship. I always assumed, oh, a processed food would have a lot of chemicals inside. I'm seeing now that they're they're very different. And I also think it's interesting that they categorize additives as how much something is being put in. So if you have a, a if you're putting a lot of chemicals in a food, that would be not considered an additive at some point. If they're putting like lock loads inside, it'd be considered grass. 
Well, I think it's important to realize that grass is actually determined by law by the FDA, right? So there's a definition okay. by law associated with what grass generally recognized as safe is. And then additives is just a general definition um, of anything added in a small amount that has some kind of technical effect. And one of the technical effects could be preservation. Um, another one could be like making an, an emulsion, you know, a proper emulsion. So a small amount of emulsifier is added, that's considered an additive, like lecithin and chocolate. Mm. So, um, so I think it's important to, to designate those two categories. Like he said, small amounts, additives. Um, the other is, is regulated by law, and it's things that are added to food, but they can be added in, in multiple or in larger quantities, I guess would be a better way to say it. But you're right that a small amount of something can be added like sugar or salt to a food. And if, if it's in a small amount, then it's considered additive. But if mm. you add a lot to a food, then it's not an additive anymore. <laughs> There's a line to cross. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there seems to be plenty of gray area as well. Yes. So we just want to talk about, <laughs> just want to talk about the stuff that's there in small amounts. There are actually two different parts of that. One is uh, one is what we call prior sub, prior sanctioned substances. So those are things that that were viewed as safe, need to be viewed as as relatively safe um, prior to this 1958. Uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, substances have been around for quite a while, and they would include things like nitrates. So these are not all substances that everyone would say, this is wonderful, let's have them in our food. But they are substances that appear to have a long uh, track record of safety. So some other substances, um, if you want to put them into food, may actually require, uh, may actually require um, proving to the FDA that these are safe. And these are, would also be included in small quantities, but you'd have to prove that they were safe before you could use them. And that usually depends on the manufacturer to prove that they are safe. So if you want to use something or you've created a new ingredient, because there are plenty of companies out there that make new ingredients, um, if, if you want it to be approved as grass, you have to do the, the burden of that proof lies on the company. And additives aren't necessarily uh, needed to be approved by the FDA. They can be created by manufacturers. And I, I'm just using an example from nutrition supplements because a lot of supplemental companies can make stuff that don't need to be approved by the FDA but can put them on the market. Um, I'm curious to know if food science deals with the same issue at times. Well, there, there's a whole distinction, and this is kind of a whole new can of worms, there's a whole distinction between <laughs> what we call a food and what we call a supplement. Mm -hmm. So there are things that you would look at and say, oh, that's a food because maybe it's in a bottle and you can, you know, you can open it up and drink it. Um, and it provides protein and some other, uh, other uh, materials that you might want to have. And you may market that as a supplement if you're a company to really focus in that area, it's much less regulated uh, than foods. If you have a nutrition facts label rather than a supplement facts label, that material is much more strictly regulated. Mm. So, so there is there is kind of a gray area between 
foods and supplements. So sometimes supplements look a whole lot like food. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really think they're any and advertised as such too, like so supplements. Far. Yeah. Yeah. I think that goes along with the whole movement of food medicine, right? Where does that definition come down? And it, like you said, Teresa, it involves a lot of nutrition as well. Um, so, you know, our polyphenols that are found in elderberries, are those medicine or is that a food? So, <laughs> and I, I think, like you said, Keith, lots of gray. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just why don't we go ahead and add one more fun fact here that there are ingredients that get into our foods that we don't necessarily add. These ingredients would be things that may get in there just because of the packaging that we're using or just because uh-huh. of the way that some something was stored. So these are called indirect. So there are a lot of materials that you can intentionally add, and that would, might be um, might be an antioxidant to prevent fats from going rancid. or it could be an antimicrobial like the benzoates, something like that. Um, there are other things that would get in there just because of the packaging that you, that you used. So it could be trace metals if it's tanning or it could be plastic components if it's a, if it's a plastic based uh, package. So those are indirect. Um, so we have a lot of different moving parts here uh, uh-huh. in terms of, the additives that we're talking about, are they large quantity, small quantity? Um, are they grass? Are they, you know, these prior sanctioned, grandfathered in kind of things? And is it, is it direct or indirect? So there are a lot of different moving parts um, for all these additives. But I think, I think the important part is really to focus on uh, this season's theme, which is preservation uh-huh. and what additives really get to preservation. Well, and I think to that end, there's some things that are, are twofers, right, that give you something in terms of preservative power and then give you something like flavor. Salt's a good example, or that's a basic taste, but that's a good example of one. The other one that makes me, um, that I think of is rosemary and how rosemary has um, antioxidant chemicals in it, right? Um, different compounds in rosemary is a, are a great antioxidant to prevent rancidity and fats. And so often in um, cured sausage products, they might add rosemary as a flavoring agent, but it also has the added benefit of the fact that it's gonna keep that sausage from going rancid as quickly. So some some you get a BOGO kind of effect out of it. You get one thing that's really good and you get another one for free. <laughs> so. Well, that's a really nice example of like a grass generally recognize a safe type of an uh, type of an additive and and I think sugar would be similar mm-hmm. you, if you add enough sugar you can lower water activity you can get a wonderfully sweet product and also something that is going to be preserved for a longer period of time so maybe thinking like dried fruits that have extra sugar added to them or just raisins that have lots of sugars once you concentrate it down enough they have lots of sugars that will allow for preservation but, but yes, spices are really interesting just because those essential oils can often have very powerful flavors and also um, have those uh, preservative effects as well, antimicrobial, antioxidant type of, of properties as well. So, yeah, it is, it is nice when we can get a two-for-one deal. 
That's right. <laughs> Salt, I'm sure, has additive effects for preservation and also can be used as a grass food. Yeah, definitely. You can you can definitely use salt to um, enhance the preservative nature of a product. Oftentimes when salt is added to canned goods, um, it's not there only for flavor. It's also there because if you have salt in the mix, it helps um, decrease your likelihood of Clostridium botulinum growth and botulism. Um, so in the early days of canning, when they didn't really understand exactly what was happening, by canning something and that they were destroying organisms, killing organisms and preserving the food. Um, they had canned organism growth. Yeah, <laughs> not what you want to have, hear a big bang in your pantry and then there's green beans everywhere um, or something messier. Um, but so they started adding salt into the mix and they found that that would increase the preservative effect of the, of the food in the food. and. Um, so it was added for flavor as well as preservation. Another BOGO. That's right. right. Want as many of those as you can get. <laughs> well, and I think in terms of preservation of food, we can think of uh, preservation from a couple of different aspects. One is safety. And so we might add antimicrobials if there is a microbe that's going to grow out and and do some harm. Nitrates and nitrites are really the, the big example there with, with trying to prevent the outgrowth of, of uh, Clostridium botulinum. Mm-hmm. So there's a harm aspect versus a quality aspect. So there are a lot of, say, anti-mold uh, type ingredients that you might use. And they're not always related to just um, to concerns over safety, but more just you're not going to eat that food if it's moldy. There are not too many fuzzy foods that that everyone likes to eat. So I think that's that's one of the other things to th- think about is the quality. Um, rancidity is interesting because, of course, uh, you can smell it. So it, it definitely changes the, the aroma of the food and usually not in a great way. So these antioxidants that can prevent that rancidity are important. But there do appear to be some... Uh, some materials that are produced as part of this rancidity that uh, can be potentially harmful to our health. So this this might be thought of as sort of a two-for-one deal in terms of mm-hmm. flavor, potentially preserving our health by not consuming these uh, fats that have gone rancid. Well, and, and on that end, too, the um, formation of acrylamide in French fries um, I guess the enzymes that are added there would be considered a, an additive product as well. So you can form acrylamide, which is um, has lots of negative health effects for humans. It's a neurotoxin, and so um, that forms at really high temperatures with certain ingredients, certain um, amino acids like asparagine that's there, and it happens to be in higher quantities in potatoes. But you can add an enzyme to um, modify that asparagine and then the acrylamide isn't formed. So, sorry, I got back on the additive thing. Not, not necessarily preservative, but it definitely impacts our health um, as far as not having that acrylamide formation be present. Are potatoes um, modified to not have the acrylamide inside? Um, no, the enzyme modifies the amino acid that is needed to participate in the reaction that um, makes the acrylamide. 
and that reaction takes place at really high temperatures. And so that's why potatoes are a really good source of that um, asparagine enzyme or um, amino acid, excuse me. And so that's why you get more acrylamide formation in French fries. You can treat the outside of those French fries because that's really the important part. It's where mm -hmm. you have contact with super high temperature oil. Um, you can treat the outside of those French fries with that enzyme and get rid of asparagine. Basically, you're just converting it from one amino acid to another, from asparagine to aspartic acid, and then it doesn't react the same way. It doesn't produce acrylamide. So that's that's one way to do it. Um, and I guess I guess potentially you could try to breed lower asparagine potatoes. Hmm. Way to do it. Um, <laughs> That's the long haul method. <laughs> Takes a little more time. <laughs> do you guys do that when you're making homemade French fries? No. I don't. I don't make homemade French fries very much. <laughs> Those are an out to eat treat for sure. Yeah. Well, and when I, you're out to eat, some things are inevitable. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly sweet potato fries will produce even higher levels of acrylamide than potatoes. Darn it. Um, those are my favorite. I know. I was thinking the same thing, Teresa. <laughs> they're my favorite as well. So I think in that case, it's, it's just a matter of uh, not eating them every day. So I eat them when I go out. I always choose sweet potato fries over other types of fries if I can. So um, I figure if I eat them, you know, once a month or once every couple of weeks, it's probably not a big deal. North Carolina did it to us, the uh, sweet potato capital of That's the country. Right. There's, there's safety and freshness versus nutritional value versus um, the, the, the texture and um, sensory profile. Uh -huh. so I, think we, I think we talked about safety and freshness. I don't know that we talked about nutritional value, like adding more vitamins or minerals. Fortification. Because you may lose them. Yeah. yeah. So so that, that is one way to think about preservation that is that is different from say the idea of just purely safety aspect or, or relative to just a, a quality aspect. And that idea of adding vitamins and minerals to a higher level. And in particular, vitamins, because they tend to be unstable. If you know that they're going to be partly destroyed by a process, you can add more so that you end up with the amount that you actually want to have right. uh, with the food on the shelf or in that refrigerator section. So that's that's a common practice is adding more of these uh, vitamins or, or other uh, nutrients if you know they're going to be destroyed or degraded as part of the process so that that level is actually present in the food itself when you're going to eat it. But that's different than for just plain fortification. Are you saying that that's different? It, it, it is different in my mind because fortification would be, would be the addition based on a law so that the entire population has a certain amount of, um, certain amount of, nutrients in staple foods so so that that idea is is uh to me where fortification comes in 
so that you're basically going above and beyond what that food would have. Like say maybe adding folate to bread flour would be one example of that fortification. Right. Have enrichment, which is adding back the stuff that removed. But the concept that, you know, if you say that you want, say, 100 percent serving of vitamin C, it's not necessarily required by law to have that in in any particular food. But if you wanted to say that on the label, it would have to be there. Right. All the processing is said and done and it gets to the shelf. Um, you know, when you get it out of the refrigerator case or whatever off of the shelf, it would need to be there if you put it on the label. And so that's a different way of looking at nutritional value. That's, I guess, if you want to consider that beyond what the law states. Right. But like the, the addition of iodine to salt is considered fortification to prevent iodine deficiency. Yes, so, that's and right. That's, that's not mandated by law. So Morton just said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. It could alleviate a lot of a lot of nutritional disease. It's been a long time. Yeah, I, I was going to say the 19 teens. And I, I'm surprised it's not mandated. I thought it um, was. I was, too. Um, I don't think fortification is mandated by law. It's just something that that um, companies have gotten on board with because it makes such a difference in the, the community and public health. So minerals and grains, I think folate, like you said, Dr. Harris, um, is a law that has been passed for also for cereal grains, um, lots of fortification. Uh Um, Iron's in there. Is iron in there? I think it's thiamine, thiamine, uh, thiamine, niacin, riboflavin, iron and folate. Yeah. A lot of B vitamins. (laughs) I think those are the ones. So the, so basically B vitamins, this one mineral, and <laughs> and um, I think the major the major goal there is is to have a public health outcome based on the consumption of a very popular staple food. Mm-hmm. So, so outside the U.S., we we don't have the same type of fortification. It may not be in bread flour. It may be in corn. Mm-hmm. So there are oh. other other. Or, or maybe you would put it in rice. It really depends on on the staple foods, particularly staple grains. Yep. What gets fortified. So, Whatever is grown in your area that is the basis of the diet. They're yeah. able to insert, uh, you said, lots of B vitamins. That's a water-soluble vitamin and can be ingested at a much higher rate, um, considerably non-toxic rate if you uh, continue to ingest it. So, um it's great. I really think that's awesome that this is a law that we have and that I understand that we have now in other countries, too, um, to make sure that people aren't getting pellagra anymore or yes. other nutrition deficiency diseases. Right. Yeah. OK, so I do see that in some cases. And I think this is where it gets it gets uh, a bit gray which is exactly why there are food attorneys. Um, they really know the really know this food law. So folic acid in 1998 was was required by FDA to be added to bread. Uh, so it says bread, pasta, rice, and cereal. Hmm. So that so not raw flour, but yeah, I think there are some things that are required to be fortified. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So maybe iodine is not is not one of them. Yeah, I don't think it is, but it's. I've seen research that has has shown that it has had an overall effect in the United States, particularly on um, uh, on socioeconomic status. Mm. Yeah, because iodine has to do with mental development in children, and so just by fortifying salt with iodine, it's it's increased the socioeconomic level of, of the United States population by like 11%. Oh my gosh. I know. It's crazy that you would, something like iodine, you wouldn't even think about that, right? Only buy iodine fortified salts. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there's an, I know the labeling of salt in the salt aisle is, it says like, um, Iodized. Iodide on it, or and yeah. some of them don't say oh, it, I guess. So yeah. that's where. I don't think mm-hmm. kosher salt is iodized. I, no, oh. I don't believe so. No, so. Okay. So yeah. it looks it looks like there's a requirement in infant formulas. Mhm. Yeah, um, but not in salt. So maybe the requirement is in is not in salt, but in other mm. in other material product. Rather than yeah. the additive. <laughs> the addition of iodine to infant formulas, iodization of salt. So, hmm, looks like there there may be some regulations around it. I feel like I need to go back back and study food law again. Yes. Yeah. And again. There are just so many nuances to it. And then iodine sources like like uh, kelp, actually. Seaweed is a good source of iodine. Oh. Yeah. So if you're living on the coast, you probably would be very unlikely to develop a goiter. <laughs> if you'd like to find out more about our new podcast, Wolfing Down Food Science, please check out our website where you can find our show notes, reference links, and more. You could find out more about NC State, our food, bioprocessing, and nutrition science department and FS201, the amazing course that has brought us all together on our website as well. Thanks for tuning in to Wolfing Down Food Science. See you next time.